Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Each weekday at noon, you'll find me here on 90.3 FM or WPLN.org. This is Nashville is our brand new daily show here at WPLN News. We're journeying into the identity of our city and region, and we're bringing you along with us. Today, we're going to take a closer look at the license plate readers the city has preparing to test out. How will this work exactly? We'll hear from one of the co-sponsors of the legislation, and then we'll make space for the community members to share how they feel. But first, there's a proposal circulating in the Tennessee legislature that could effectively ban abortions in the state. And that's not the only bill up for debate at the moment. Seeking to restrict abortion access. Here to break it down for us is WPLN healthcare reporter Blake Farmer. Blake, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. So let's start with the bill on deck right now that could effectively ban abortions in the state. It's based off of the Texas law, right? Correct. Yes, this is a new Texas law, sometimes referred to as almost like a vigilante law, where it allows private citizens to kind of enforce uh, a ban on abortions after six weeks, at least in Texas. And this is this is actually happening right now. It's all kind of been moving pretty quickly, but today is sort of the day then that at least we're we're expecting to see this uh, debated in both the the state. House and the the state Senate. Uh, For those keeping up, it's uh, House Bill 2779. Mm -hmm. But uh, what's important here is um, this is a a bill that that um, there's an amendment uh, to this bill that uh, would be added to it today if if uh, the sponsors um, uh, are successful. And it would make it so that in um, in Tennessee, uh, if a woman wanted to have an abortion, uh, anyone who aids or abets uh, that abortion, which could be read, you know, many different ways, um, they could be subject to a lawsuit that could be brought by any private citizen um, for ten thousand dollars, and it actually could be more um, uh, if if uh, the person seeks that in court. So um, this is very much based on the the law that is in Texas that a lot of opponents. Uh, we're really thinking that this would not stand withstand a court challenge in Texas and have been very surprised that it actually has withstood several court challenges in Texas and is still the law of the land and has uh, effectively blocked uh, abortions after six weeks. The difference in Tennessee is that ours does not have a six-week provision at the moment and that okay. it it is... Um, it would be basically all abortions unless the life of the mother is in danger. So essentially you're saying that if I give a person a ride who is intending to have an abortion, I therefore can be sued under this legislation. Well, that, you know, it, it sounds a, a, a little hard to think that, that you could be at fault in that situation, right? Um, but the, the wording is very broad. And so there's a that's certainly the fear hmm. of, of folks who um, are, are trying to protect protect women's right to an abortion is that um, that it, it, this is no longer talking about that, you know, physicians could get in trouble. It's talking about anyone who is a part of it. I mean, there's even language in in this that's that says regardless of the knowledge of the abortion, which is hard to know exactly how that would be interpreted by courts. But, yes, 
you could make a broad case for 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 anyone involved with an abortion, even let's say a loved one who is is offering support as someone's trying to make this very difficult decision, or maybe even the Uber driver, as as I pointed to earlier, giving someone the ride. Now, Blake, yesterday you sat down with Kelly, who had an abortion in 2018, right after she was graduating from Vanderbilt. She said that this new bill would not have stopped her from getting an abortion, but it could have. But her health put her health at risk. You know, let's hear a little bit about your conversation. So it's not going to do the thing that they want it to do. And I can speak to that personally because it wouldn't have changed my mind. Um, And even preliminary data coming out of Texas shows a similar thing. And this is almost the exact same bill. But the second part is that not only does it not accomplish the aim that they want it to, but it endangers lives in other ways. So their goal is to save lives, so to speak, but instead they're just risking more lives. Um, And what's the danger you you see in your experience? The danger I see is isolating people who have abortions even more than you already are. You know, I've struggled with depression and anxiety for a really long time, and this event, because of the cultural isolation, was so much more acute than previous experiences of that. that had this bill been into effect, I can almost guarantee it would have had serious effects on my physical and mental health, like lasting physical effects, and that I might not be here today. So in that sense, it's risking lives. Blake, tell us a little bit more about what Kelly means when she says that this bill would make people who need abortions more isolated. Well, you know, she's suggesting that um, if you were indeed worried um, that even, let's say, a family member, a close friend, could be um, at risk of, of being sued for $10,000 or more just by um, helping you make this complicated decision or, or being there kind of as, as your, your uh, arm to lean on or, or just um, helping you out with getting to and from, let's say, an abortion um, clinic, mm. um, that that uh, alone w- would keep her, she's suggesting, fr- from wanting to reach out and it would become an even more isolating experience. Okay, so the other bill on deck would restrict access to medical abortions. Explain what that bill would do. Okay, so when we call when we say the word medical abortion, we're we're usually talking about um, using medication to uh, uh, to uh, cause an abortion, which is is how uh, these days, at least according to the Guttmacher Institute, most abortions occur. They they happen early enough in pregnancy that you can use medication uh, to to do it. Well, um, this this bill, um, it, it's hard. you kind of have to read th- between the lines, but with what the sponsors are saying about these bills, because um, you know nobody wants to be uh, uh, nobody's being exactly frank uh, about what the bill is intended to do. On its face, it sounds like it just increases the penalties if a doctor basically didn't follow all the rules in prescribing the medication. But there are also some slight changes that that seem like they are preparing for a world when Roe versus Wade, which protects the right to an abortion, is struck down. And that is a very real possibility this summer with the new makeup of the Supreme Court. They're looking at a a, uh, a law that's been challenged, a, 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 a abortion restriction in Mississippi. And even amongst uh, folks who, who try to protect the rights of women to have an abortion, they're planning for this future. So that, that's what this bill w- it would do. And he- here's where it happens. It restricts 
uh, it makes it so that a doctor would actually have to hand you this medication uh, when it's prescribed for an abortion. Um, now, clearly, maybe you're asking, why would that make a difference? Mm-hmm. And it's because um, th- there are more, especially during the pandemic, we saw more of this, where some states will allow telehealth visits to um, to talk to a doctor about having an abortion, which would allow you to maybe have a telehealth visit with, let's say, a doctor in Massachusetts, and then they could prescribe the medication, and a pharmacist here would fill it just like they do for most medication. This law that's being proposed um, uh, by Senator Mike Bell, um, w- one of the provisions would be that the doctor actually has to hand you the medication. Now, he doesn't say that that's preparing for this future world when perhaps Roe versus Wade is struck down. But what it would do is it would you would not be able to get, you know, one of these telehealth visits from out of state um, because that doctor would have to hand you the medication. Basically, pharmacists wouldn't be allowed to give you the abortion medication. I want to circle back real quick. Okay. What would happen if Roe versus Wade were overturned? Well, Tennessee is one of uh, a pretty long list of states, uh, basically states that are led by Republican legislatures or have been in the last few years, that has what's known as a trigger law. Um, And not every trigger law is the same, but what these are, uh, they were sort of envisioning, because this has been a very big, um, you know, push by um, Republicans for for many, many years, as you know, um, to, to strike down Roe versus Wade. Um, So they were preparing for that future. And so a lot of states, including Tennessee, passed these trigger laws. Tennessee passed theirs, I believe, in 2019. Um, And what it would do is if Roe versus Wade is struck down, abortion would effectively be banned, uh, except for a few small instances in Tennessee. That would happen 30 days after Roe versus Wade um, is struck down. So uh, Tennessee, like a lot of other states, uh, especially here in the South, led by Republicans, it would uh, abortion would be against the law for the most part. And back to these two bills we were talking about. Yeah. Who, who's behind them? Who are the legislators who are sponsoring these? Well, the the Texas-styled bill um, is from a, a first-term representative named Rebecca Alexander from uh, Northeast Tennessee. Um, and uh, I, I've not been able to reach her to talk about this. Her office um, actually said she, w- she was not going to be available to talk about it. You know, they're, they're, they're very... This is one of the the way this is coming out is by some a method that's called a caption bill. At least that's the way it's referred to at the state capitol, and it's not every state capitol. This is just unique to Tennessee. Um, hmm. But but what happens is there's a bill that's sort of general about abortion, um, but then the the intent from the very beginning is to make a big edit. A, a, a big wow. amendment that essentially rewrites it. It's like proposing it at the last minute, which is perhaps what's going to happen today, that puts all this new language in it. It makes it a totally different kind of a, a, a bill, sort of shortens the time for debate, <laughs> lets people. Um, and of course, there's tons of stuff going on this on at the state capitol right now. So a, a lot of it, it can get lost in the fray. But it's a first term uh, member of the House who's leading it, uh, uh, Rebecca Alexander. And then in the 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 medication abortion that would that would sort of keep this telemedicine abortion from happening in Tennessee. Um, that that comes from Senator Mike Bell, who's who's from down in Riceville. Okay, so got a minute left, but. As a healthcare reporter, you mm-hmm. spend a lot of time talking about deeply personal issues. Mm. What's it been like covering this story? You know, I, so I talked to Kelly yesterday who was talking about her abortion in 2018. And, you know, 
I'll talk to people about a lot, but this is like the last thing I want to twist somebody's arm into talking about their own experience. And yet, um, I think my editors think, and even even Kelly really thinks that that people need to hear about the real experiences of people who have been through uh, getting an abortion in Tennessee, because um, it is a complicated. Uh, and, and deeply personal and yet uh, important process for, for people to know that's going on right now. That is Blake Farmer, senior health care reporter for WPLN News. Blake, thanks for being here, and thank you for your reporting, my friend. Thank you. Last month, Metro Council approved, Metro Council approved a pilot program that will test out license plate readers on the Nashville streets. After a short break, we will learn more about it and what it means for our day-to-day life. Stay with us. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. More than After more than a year of back and forth last month, the Metro Council approved legislation to test out the use of license plate readers to solve some violent crime in Nashville. It's been a hotly debated issue. Proponents hope the measure will curb crime, while those against fear the license plate readers will actually put our black and brown neighbors at greater risk. We'll get into those opposing perspectives in a few community members later on in the show. But first, let's get up to speed with the latest with WPLN Metro reporter Ambriel Kurzfeld. Ambriel, thank you for being here. Thank you. So for anyone listening who may not be familiar with the program, break it down for us. What will these license plate readers do? Yes, so the license plate readers will be placed on poles around the city. Um, We're not sure where they'll go at this exact moment, but that was, of course, a hot topic uh, for equity reasons. But as your car passes by, it takes pictures of your license plate. Um, and say a police officer um, or NDOT, or in NDOT, by the way, is the local uh, transportation department. But if any of those groups uh, needed to get, like, re- they had a reasonable reason to go look at that data, then they can go and review uh, the tape for whatever reason that they're looking for. Not whatever reason, sorry, that is super broad. But no, it's more so focused on investigating and prosecuting felonies and detecting traffic and parking violations, those kind of things. So who are the lawmakers behind this? Yes, so... Um, this originally started out as something that was supposed to be geared towards stopping drag racing um, when that was Councilmember Stiles in Southeast area that proposed that idea. But then Councilmember Johnston, um, you know, did her own research and realized that it actually isn't effective for drag racing. So the uh, bill got changed over time to be her bill specifically was a lot broader, uh, which is how we have what we with the law we have today. Um, but then there were all pe- also people like Councilmember Dave Rosenberg who was very against expanding license plate readers. Um, and so it, initially he wanted to keep it really narrow um, to the disliking of the police office, the police officers. Um, but over time, he realized that the council was in support of using the tool or at least figuring out how it could work with us. So who is going to have access to the data that's collected from these license plate readers? Yeah, so um, it's a very specific le- list as far as like police officers or, um, you know, the DA or public defenders, but they do have to put in a request to be able to look at the information and it has to be an hour before so so they do have safety precautions they can't just say oh we think something suspicious is going on they have to uh, have a reasonable reason an hour before to look at the data and there's going to be a log that's kept of that so 
you've been covering this story for over a year, right? Mm-hmm. What have you gained in in what what insights have you gained from covering this? Um, I think I've just been interested in, like, I guess to what extent we listen to community residents. I mean, I think the biggest theme that I heard through this whole thing is just like the trust in the government and police. Um, and also just like who has power to what, de- uh, you know, in, in, and to what degree you have power, because I know at a certain point, Councilmember Johnson was like, hey, we've been talking about this for too long. We need to get the show on the road. Um, and, and, and obviously you have to do that in order to like make progress and get something going. But I think that a lot of the concerns um, and the long list of organizations that were against it, um, it showed to me a lot of like who has power in the city. What were some of the concerns of these organization members? Yes, a lot of them were concerned that it would um, like harm the civil liberties of black and brown communities. Um, and, and a lot of that both comes in like where we place the license plate readers. Um, you know, on one hand, Councilmember Johnson, who whose law passed, was like, well, if we put them all in Green Hills, for example, then y'all are going to say, oh, they always get all the stuff. Uh, but if we put it all in black neighborhoods, then we would have the opposite, um, you know, reaction. So, um, yeah, that's been very interesting. Okay, so you spent time in the Haynes Park community where the Neighborhood Association raised funds on their own to install a pair of license plate readers. Mm-hmm. Let's hear a little bit from a conversation you had with Al Baston, who is a res- resident there. All of us try to get together. We try to look out for each other. And we try to do that now, at least on this street that I live on. Most of us try to look out for each other. We have a few that, you know, is the new generation, so we just have to fight that one. And what do you mean, uh, look after each other? Like, what does that look like? We or? watch out. We, if, if one of us go out of town, we can tell them, and they'll help look out, look out for your house. Uh we try to help each other in any kind of way. If they need help, I help them. That was a clip that you heard from Al Batson. So it sounds like there's a strong sense of neighborhood, fe- neighborly feeling there. People are in community. How did that show up in your reporting on these new cameras? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. When I initially heard of, about this um, happening in Haynes Park, a lot of conversation from council members would be like, oh, yeah, black people do want this. Like, look at this neighborhood. And then we would hear organizers say the exact opposite. Uh, so I reached out to Gina Coleman, um, who's one of the community leaders. And so she just honestly like took me around walking in the neighborhood and we were able to meet a couple people. Um, and honestly, looking through like newspaper clippings, I was able to see like how much the neighborhood had changed. Like it used to be um, black people that had a certain level of class that were buying in this neighborhood. And now it's changed. Like there are more white residents, which I was able to meet. Um, and they seem to kind of take a little bit of a backseat understanding like that this is a historically black neighborhood, but also there's a halfway house, there are renters. So it's quite a mix of who's there and um, what their opinions are. And, and, um, and, and to, from what I was able to report, it was a lot of the people that I talked to were homeowners. Um, so if I was to do it again, I wish I would have been able to talk to people um, that maybe we're not and, and get their sense of things. We're actually going to hear from Gina Coleman a little bit after the break. But it's, so, you know, Embryo, you have to leave us here in a minute. But before you go, I want to introduce our next guest, who is a co-sponsor for the measure. Jennifer Gamble is the Metro Council City Metro Council member for District 3. Councilwoman Gamble, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. And thank you for having me today. So, Embryo, before you leave us, do you have any questions for the Councilwoman? Yes. Hey, Councilmember Gamble. Um, Good morning. Good afternoon, Andrea. <laughs> I know, right? I don't even know what time it is. Um, the question I just had is, I mean, 
obviously when um, the police department and the police chief were talking about license plate readers, one thing I've just been curious about is like what other tools the city uh, plans to put in place to curb violence. Um, since we know that, of course, putting funding towards housing and child care and mental health sort resources, all of those things help to reduce crime. So uh, that's the thing I'm going to throw out there. <laughs> Yes, thank you for that question. And there are actually several, uh, you're right, there's no one silver bullet. There's a multi-pronged approach going on now to help reduce and solve crimes in our city. You may be aware of the uh, mental co-op response program that started last year where mm -hmm. we have uh, mental health professionals uh, responding with MMPD officers on calls that uh, could be related to a mental health crisis. Uh, that program started out as a pilot in just a couple of precincts. It's been expanded recently to additional precincts. In addition, the MMPD has increased or, or maybe changed their hours uh, to have officers on 10-hour shifts in order to uh, better have transition in between uh, the peak crime hours, particularly in the early morning hours and uh, late at night. And so those are just two examples of other uh, programs or, or techniques and measures that uh, the city and MMPD are taking to uh, help reduce crime in our city. And you may remember uh, two years ago, uh, the um, cameras, the um, the personal body cameras that the police wear was something that the community really felt uh, would help um, help solve crimes, deter crimes, but also address uh, discrimination uh, that has been historically experienced by our Black, Brown, and immigrant communities. And, and that was something that was important to the Metro Council as well to uh, to support and to fund. And we did get those body cameras. Those uh, cameras have been in operation for two years now and have, have been helpful in um, addressing those concerns of discrimination and also helping in, in solve crime in our city. You want to respond, Ambria? Yeah, I guess um, I know that, of course, you were in on a lot of the conversations where we heard from community members as well as council members. Um, and even when the law passed last month, uh, Council Member Sandra Sepulveda stood up and uh, basically told everyone to take note of like all of the people of color organi run organizations that were opposed to this or had uh, questions that maybe that were still lingering. Um, I guess I am just curious as to like what you think the city should be doing in order to create trust if uh, there was so much hesitation still, even when the law passed? Yeah, I think transparency and communication is very important. Uh, you, you may be aware that we had several uh, community meetings, at least five uh, community meetings that were announced that the council uh, uh, spearheaded, and then council members had their own individual community meetings. But within those community meetings, we heard concerns from community groups and others about how this technology could be used to to miss could be misused rather to track and unfairly target black and brown and immigrant communities, uh, which I said earlier have been historically targeted and discriminated against by law enforcement. And and out of those discussions, we we heard about um, the need to have measures in place to. Uh, to avoid or to to create more transparent trans transparency and restrictions on how the tool, the license plate reader tool, would be used 
to safeguard um, data, to safeguard people's personal privacy and literacy, uh, 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 private liberties, and also how it how it could be shared and stored, and and measures for accountability for misuse. So we we listened to those concerns over a fifteen month period. We uh, attempted, and I think we did address many of those concerns in the bill revisions and amendments. I, I submitted two amendments myself to address those concerns. And I think having this program as a six month pilot program uh, to provide an opportunity to, to see if those measures and, and restrictions and the transparency that has been put in place uh, as a part of the policy for operating this tool, it, it is uh, useful and successful in, in addressing those concerns. And if not, uh, there is an opportunity to discontinue the program. So I, I think, and I, and I recognize and appreciate all of the um, communication and, and the concerns that have been expressed by the community and the community groups. As I said, I believe we address many of those concerns in the bill and uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation uh, during this, uh, the, the pilot period to um, address any other concerns or address any misuse that may could be found. That's Metro Councilwoman Jennifer Gamble of District Three, I want to thank Ambriel Crutchfeld, Metro reporter for WPLN. Ambriel, thank you so much for coming in and for your reporting on this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, I'm Khalil Le Colonna, and this is Nashville. We're talking about the recently approved pilot program that will put license plate readers on the streets of Nashville for six months. Now, Councilwoman Gamble, as we mentioned, this was a hotly debated issue on the council. Even in February, it narrowly passed. I'm curious about how did the final measure change over the course of the year before council voted to approve it last month? Yes, I appreciate that question. And, and I think it was noted earlier that there were actually two bills. Uh, there was the bill sponsored or led by council member Courtney Johnston uh, BL 2021-961, and then the bills uh, led by Council Member Dave Rosenberg, uh, BL 2021-841, that address uh, the, the use of license plate readers uh, for Metro government. And the bills really had two significant differences. And that was in the retention time that the data, license plate data would be stored. You know, these license plate readers would capture only license plate data. It, it would not be used in, in both bills. It would not be used for surveillance of any individual. It would not be used for any facial recognition. So no one would be stopped based on their race, sex, or anything else. It would only be based on the license plate number. Mm -hmm. And if and that number would only be pulled by MMPD if it showed up on a hot list, a national database that suggests that that license plate had been involved in a crime. And so there were specific parameters as to how this license plate data would be used. It would only be used for uh, invest investigating or prosecuting felony offenses or criminal offenses associated with violent crimes, such as gun violence, homicide, assault, and reckless driving. 
It would only be used for civil traffic or parking offenses, and that's mainly hit and runs uh, that resulted in injury or death. It would use for operating a smart parking uh, management program and assisting in missing persons, amber and silver alerts. So there were specific uses uh, that this data would only be used for. And again, only that number uh, that would be uh, retained from a hot list. So retention was a big, was a, was a difference in that the, uh, I've got a question for you though. I've got a question for you. I mean, like, yes. what, uh-huh. what have you been saying to citizens who are concerned that this could harm black and brown communities? Well, I, I I'm saying that yes, traditionally, I, I feel like this takes the bias out of it. Traditionally stops by police have been made, you know, subjectively, uh, based on whatever, uh, the, it could be racial, it could be just the area that a person is in. This takes the bias out of it because stops are only being made based on a license plate number that has been identified on a criminal database has, as being involved in a crime. So, so in my opinion, this helps uh, reduce the amount of discriminatory stops that we've seen historically because it takes the bias away from the police officer and puts it on a technology that is only uh, providing information on a on a vehicle that has been involved and in, potentially involved in a crime. Okay, so on the the on the day of the vote last month, I understand council members got a letter from our police chief John Drake asking for support and promising that the license plate reader information would not be shared with immigrations and custom enforcement. Will the data be shared with ICE? In both bills, there was no intent for the data to be used uh, for immigration ICE uh, services. However, it is unlawful. There, we, we are not able to restrict uh, use from immigration services just because of, of state law and, and federal laws. Uh, but there is no intention for this to be used in that way. And we all agree, uh, many of the council members that, that supported either bill agree that we need to look at um, other measures if we can't uh, legally restrict uh, ICE from t- using this data for any type of enforcement, then taking other measures similar to what Metro schools and other school systems have done to avoid uh, ICE using their data base uh, to, for enforcement uh, in our schools. So when does the six-month test period actually begin? The six-month period will begin once the license plate readers are purchased and placed uh, so now we are in the process where the initial bill has passed, but we still have to pass legislation to purchase the license plate readers, and that has not uh, come before us as of yet. But the six months would start once the uh, license plate readers are purchased and placed. Well, we keep an eye on this as it develops. That is Metro Council Member Jennifer Gamble from District 3. Councilwoman Gamble, thank you again very much for joining us. Really appreciate having you on the show. We're taking a short break. When we come back, we'll get some reactions from community members, both for and against license plate readers. This is Nashville. Stick with us.
Music. I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. Before the break, we heard from Metro Council member Jennifer Campbell, co-sponsor of the bill that's bringing license plate readers to Nashville for a trial period of six months. Now we want to get reactions from a few community members who have opposing views. Joining me now are Gina Coleman of the Haynes Park Neighborhood Association and Reverend Davey Trucker from Beach Creek Mission Church in Edgefield. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Gina Coleman. Now, Gina, your neighborhood, Haynes Park, actually pulled some funds together to purchase license plate readers of your own. Tell me, how did that come about? Well, what happened is the neighbors had contacted me and said, look, we need, uh, we having a lot of crime up here at the front entrance of the neighborhood. Normally, these, uh, don't forget, don't forget, a neighborhood is aging. So we have neighbors that are in and out in the 70s and 80s. And so it usually was a peaceful part of the neighborhood, was experiencing a lot of crime, a lot of shootings, a lot of fightings, a lot of uh, uh, disruption, and um, it disturbed the neighbor's peace. So they came to me and they said, look, we are having some problems up there, and we, are, we would like to get some security cameras, and we're willing to pay for them. So I went and I started researching and started looking, and I found this this these cameras that seemed like they would meet the need of the neighborhood. So I pulled the information down, and I uh, sent it. I got in touch with that company, and and then it's uh, out of Georgia, and um, we started doing Zoom calls, and we start uh, we started last in 2020. In June of 2020, they contacted me. Uh, we were work, talking about it April and May, <clears throat> so we've been talking about it. And so I started looking and I started doing my research. And this company seemed like it would meet our needs, so we started doing Zoom calls, and we started <clears throat> inviting everybody to the call and in the, uh, that I had numbers for. And uh, to hear them do a presentation to us of uh, what they could do, what these cameras could do, and we got our um, we got, got the commander on the phone. We got some, the senator. We got uh, Representative Dix. We got some different um, uh, leadership on the phone to hear the call, and we did this for about three or four calls, and and we we let them send us a proposal. And we made copies of the proposal. We took it before our board, the Haynes Park Neighborhood Board, and we talked about it. We voted on it, and we made copies of the proposal, 250 copies, and we went door to door, and we distributed the copies. We put a, a newsletter in front of it telling them that their neighborhood mm-hmm. was not safe. Well, what had happened is that someone had we we had a couple of, Things more than one thing to happen. We had we had four. Twenty twenty was a crazy year. We saw violence in our neighborhood that we never saw. Mm-hmm. We had on July twenty ninth, twenty twenty, a big drug bust where the neighbor we knew we had a problem with that home that was selling drugs, but we couldn't prove it. What so if they did? The, 
I got a question for you, though. What did you all find after you installed these license plate readers, after the drug bust, and after some of these crimes that were taking place in the neighborhood that were new? What happened is that last year was a year of peace. We had nobody reporting any incidents. If some things were going on, they didn't tell us. Hmm. Interesting. We, the last year we had uh, peace, like we have been experiencing over the years. Last 2020 was a crazy, crazy year. We had not seen that kind of level of violence at all since 2004. Re- Reverend Davy Tucker, I'd like to bring you in right now. You and Gina disagree about this approach, but tell us, how do you feel about license plate readers? Well, and uh, I just want to uh, say thank you for the invitation, but it's David Tucker and our pastor, Beach Creek Missionary Baptist Church. Yes, sir. Had to get, had to get that out. Uh, I don't think we disagree. I think that's a difference of uh, a personal policy versus public policy. Um, what, what some property owners decide to do in their area uh, should not be extrapolated out automatically into public policy. I think what we have here is apples and oranges. Um, The LPRs are part of a larger issue that has to be talked about and still needs work. And that is the changing of the policing policy, the, the policing philosophy that Nashville has been using that continually gets challenged. So my argument is that, or my position is LPRs are part of the large issue. Nashville overwhelmingly with the establishment of the, of the civilian oversight board says, we want accountability and transparency for the Metropolitan Police Department. It was a vote of no confidence in MMPD. And so there've been reports that have done uh, driving while black, uh, the policing project out of New York University, the uh, Department of Justice report, even uh, Attorney General Funk published a report that all says the same thing. So we have data to show it, but we keep getting bogged down in these issues that don't get at the heart of accountability and transparency. And now you make LPRs an individual issue. It's all part of the same thing. Uh, When policing happens in Nashville, there is a disproportionate application on black and brown bodies and poor people. So my hope has been that our uh, governmental agencies and entities, the Metro Council, would continue to address these issues and not get caught up in issues such as LPRs. If you look back, this issue has been going on two or three years. It has come up, I think, about five times. My question continues to be, what is the force that after the people have spoken and the council has voted, what is that force that exists in Nashville that keeps bringing this issue back up? You noted earlier, it barely passed this time. They say it was 15 community organizations. Several organizations were unable uh, to get their names on that list. This bill has been killed multiple times. Why and how does it keep coming up? 
Well, those we'll, are answers. We're going to look to try to answer those. If you're just tuning in, I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. We're talking this hour about license plate readers. The city will start testing these out soon in hopes that they will help solve violent crime. Now, Dr. Balusum Brumanian is a senior researcher at Vanderbilt University whose research has helped inform license plate reader legislation that the council passed. He says user error is one issue he's seen in Memphis where license plate readers have been in use for years. So it misread a plate uh, and someone was stopped incorrectly uh, and held at gunpoint. Um, and that, uh, as my understanding goes, that was uh, user error on, on the law enforcement's part. So probably what should have happened was uh, a visual confirmation of the plate should have been done uh, and that wasn't done. So that's an error and that is preventable. Uh, those sorts of errors should not happen. And, and that's a technology error, but there should be a, a user policy in place uh, to, to prevent, prevent it from escalating. Reverend Tucker, how does Dr. Balusu Brumanian's explanation fit with your concerns about license plate readers? Uh, great question. If you take what he just said, inherent in what he says is an overall policing philosophy, which tolerates harm, again, to black and brown folk. It's okay. That's over-policing. Uh, and there is no remedy built in to stop that from happening. So when bad policing happens, it happens on black and brown bodies. But if we were working harder toward accountability and transparency within the department, uh, I just heard uh, council member G Gamble, Gamble uh, talk about, um, you know, the body cameras. Well, the body cameras were fault tooth and nail. The money was appropriated years before we could even get them out. It was slow walked by the department. Uh, they talk about this mental health thing. Why was it not out on the interstate when they gunned down a man who was obviously in mental health distress? These are issues that are uh, based around how you approach your job. Where do you value? And what do you value? Police primarily respond to crime. If you look at the statistics, and the professor would, would also agree that uh, police respond to crime, they do very little bit of prevention of crime. There are other forces at work in our community. When, when you criminalize poverty, suddenly being poor gets counted in the crime statistics. Mm -hmm. We're going about this horribly. Gina, let me ask you your reaction to that. Oh, my God, because I, I've, I have a totally different view. We have been do, dealing with crime uh, since 2004, gangs. We've been dealing with drug, uh, drug uh, sales. We have been dealing with neighbors being intimidated by drug dealers on the street. We had 40 no parking and standing signs on our street to come against loitering and, and uh, the gangs on the street. So the police... Uh, I've got to say, we have we did not lose uh, confidence in the Metro Police Department. We needed the police department to help a community that was opposing itself. We had black-on-black -black crime. We had a murder in the middle of the street. We had someone that was shot down in front of my house, laying dead in the street like a dog. So I, we have a totally different approach. We had 
black on black crime. We safety has been Haynes Park issue since 2004. This new technology has helped us. We still need our neighborhood watch. We still have to identify the cameras of just a tool. But we still need our neighborhood watch. We still need our people to be looking out for each other. We still have to identify what color was that car. Yes, the car came into the neighborhood, but we still need to know, did you see what color the car was? Did you, uh, could you identify anything about the car? The first line of offense is called the Metro Police Department. That's what you're supposed to do. We need the Metro Police Department. How are we going to stand against something or some uh, uh, entity that helps us? Reverend Tucker. Okay, okay. If obviously I'm not being clear because uh, I understand um, her response. I'm born and raised in 37208. I passed in 37218. Me and my church are some of the first members of the Hang Trinity Coalition. I understand what she's saying. But again, I think it is not being framed right. When you talk about black on black crime, crime is always, and again, the studies bear this out, uh, crime is always done in proximity. So there is no dispute between black-on-black crime versus white-on-white crime. Mm -hmm. Those are racist whistles that because people just don't know. People tend to do crime in their communities. So there there is no difference in black-on-black and white-on-white crime. What I said earlier, their personal policy that those property owners wanted to do is no problem. I, I have no problem with that. The issue is when you turn this into a public policy and the public has made it clear that they don't want it. Go anywhere in the world where there is poverty and you find the same things. Mm -hmm. Violence, the closer you get to poverty, that's where it happens. So until we address why that, please, 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 please. Until we address these issues, why is it if I go to Bangladesh and go to a poor neighborhood, the exact same things are happening? Uh, so we have to address these systemic issues that allow crime to only be in one issue. But I, I to, think, excuse me, to only be in one area. Let me let me and jump so, in right again, here. Let me jump in right here because Gina, I think Gina was mentioning that you said that your neighborhood is not a poor neighborhood. Am I am I right? No, we have. We are a working-class neighborhood. Our neighbors uh, go to work. We've got husbands and wives. We've got families. We're solid family. We have, if our children have gotten involved in this, this this, this is it's not because my mom, my, my, the, the husband may work at uh, Nissan and the, the wife may work at the bank. The boy, young man is out in the street because of the associations he's making. So what we have to look at what's pouring out in the street from the home, but that doesn't mean that the home is poor. But here it is, though. Here it is. I understand where both of you all are coming from. We're talking about the root causes no. of violence. We were talking about the root causes of crime. We all want our neighborhoods to be safe. We all want our streets to be safe. And 
with this proposal of these license plate reader cameras, you know, what are what can we do to really find programs and systems that will actually work? Is it merely just having programs church. like this don't about, be, or is it working in concert church. with the community? What's the church doing? Okay, I will tell you, uh, public, when uh, you start talking about what is it that we need to do, we need to expand the definition of what public safety means. Traditionally, it's been considered just police and fire. But public safety on many different fronts, whether it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs or however you want to quantify it, public safety is beyond that. It is more than that. It is adequate housing. It is good jobs. And I did not mean to say that they were poor. What I'm saying on a continuum of resources, as you head toward the bottom, those things pick up anywhere in the world. So. So there are things that are at work that need to be addressed that get sidetracked when we talk about LPRs, but not holding officers and the supervisors accountable for the trust that we put in them. It is, it is unfathomable that black parents have to give the black talk to their children and white parents don't. So let's talk about that and get those foundational issues worked out before we get up here and turn LPRs into a wedge issue. Well, I know, that, I know that this will not be the last time we really talk about this. I want to thank both of you very much for being on the show, for addressing your views passionately. I really appreciate you both being here because this is something that we're going to continue to talk about and bring up not only with keeping our neighborhoods safe, but as well as, you know, finding trust in police. That is Gina Coleman and Reverend Davey Tucker. Thanks to you both again for being on the show. And we want to thank you all for tuning in this hour. Tomorrow's show is all about trash. What's going on exactly? Well, tune in. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back to this episode at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Ambriel Crutchfield. The conversation does not end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We want to hear your views on license plate readers. Plus, find us on Facebook and Instagram. Tell us what you want of our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.